the midst of the quarantine, a whole lot of people have been turning to a whole lot of comfort food. And often that comfort food includes sugar. Well, if you've been binging on sugar or if you've struggled with obesity issues, there's a good chance that you're actually a sugar addict. Since the 1950s, did you know our consumption of sugar has doubled? And in fact, we've got four times as many people who are obese. Well, it's no coincidence, more sugar and more obesity. The only way to effectively lose weight is to change your relationship with food and with sugar in particular. Molly Carmel, author of Breaking Up With Sugar, joins me today to teach you how to do it. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator podcast. Don't forget at the end to rate and review us and please share it. You'd be surprised how many people have the same struggles that you do. Hi, I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert sourced, expert vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. And I'm thrilled to be talking today to Molly Carmel, author of the very important book entitled Breaking Up With Sugar, Divorce the Diets, Drop the Pounds, and Live Your Best Life. Molly's made it her life's mission to help people find sustainable solutions to obesity and related eating disorders. After battling her own eating disorder for more than 20 years and capping out the scale at 325 pounds and finding no solution in available treatments, she created The Beacon, where she helps clients recover from similar addictions. Molly has her master's from Columbia University of Social Work, as well as extensive training in addiction, nutrition, and dialectical behavioral therapy. And you can learn more about Molly and her work at mollycarmel.com. And Breaking Up With Sugar is available in print for the tablet in audio so that you can read it, listen to it, take it with you on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. So welcome, Molly. I'm so glad to talk to you. Oh, Sarah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to get to talk to you too. So, you know, we were just chatting for a moment before we started recording about the how evergreen and and important the topic of breaking up with sugar and sugar addiction is. But there's this other element that I think, you know, we all have to be aware of also as we're recording this in the middle of the pandemic and the quarantine, that people have turned to the comfort foods, to the white flowers and to the sugar. So I think that we actually have kind of a double duty today as we're talking through the importance of breaking up with sugar and how people cannot, you know, not have that control their lives anymore. Oh yeah, I think it's um actually think the pandemic has shined the light for for people who were on the cusp of thinking they might be in an unhealthy relationship with sugar. I think for many people this has been the deciding vote um and I think that there is such an enormous amount of binge culture being co-signed at least on social media um and and I think it's a it's it's a really interesting time to have written this book. Anytime I would have written it, it's interesting, but while we're all trapped in our houses, highly anxious, you know, some of us with too much to do, some of us with nothing to do, there are people turning more and more to back into this abusive relationship that they have with food, maybe even more than ever. Um, yeah, well, I'm seeing it. It's funny. You know, I, was, I just was reading an article last week about how, um, I'll call it comfort food, right? So that's the euphemism they put on things like sugar and, and, and grease. <laughs> call it comfort food. It sounds so good. Um, but that's like consumption of that and sales of that are up about 30% in the last couple of months. So it's people are definitely craving it. So let's talk about how people understand this insidious thing. They may or not, may not even realize they have it because it's just so part of who they are. So why don't we start with, tell me your story so that, because I think it's really helpful for people to connect, to hear someone else's story and go, oh, wow, I could relate to that. So tell me your story about the sugar, the treatments you tried and didn't work, et cetera. Sure, sure. I mean, I, and I'm one of those people where, and I say this in the book, right, that, that, that old commercial where he said, you know, 
I'm not just a hair club. I'm not just the hair club president. I'm right. also a member. You know, I come to this work so honestly, and I and I think in a way come to it with with every permutation of the struggle that exists, um, which I feel really grateful for today. On the other side of it, you know, I feel really grateful for. And so, you know, I was born, you know, pretty big. Like I was born nine pounds, 12 ounces. You know, if you look at my family tree, there's a lot of addiction, there's a lot of obesity. So biologically, I I come to this very honestly. And um, and so then, then when I was right before I turned three, my father passed away very traumatically. And um you know, and, and so by the age of four or five, I was turning to sugar in a way that was not healthy. Right. And I had a, I had cravings for it and I would be kind of seeking it out. My mother tells stories like at the parties, I was like, couldn't get to the food fast enough and I was hiding it and I was hoarding it. And it makes sense. Right. And there's a lot of research on trauma. Can I I ask a question about that real quickly? Because, um, and I grew up, I, I think I told you this when we talked a couple weeks ago, I was a child of the 60s. I grew up on Fruit Loops and Pop-Tarts and all, like, it was in my house, so it was given to me. So when, there you are, four and five, you don't have control over the grocery store. Like, somewhere, it was coming into your house also. Like, was that, was it part of your family culture? Yes, you were going to the birthday parties and getting as many donuts as you could. But was there, what, was it core to your family culture before that. No, so that it actually rather... wasn't at all. Right. And, and I actually, I always, adolescent, the adolescent obesity epidemic is so fascinating to me. I, I actually, I started the first ever therapeutic boarding school for adolescent obesity um, in 2006. I think it was that year. It's so long ago, but you know, it's such an interesting part of it. it actually, my mother was very, very healthy. And I always wonder you know, if she had let me have more and she wasn't so restricting of the food would have been better. But then I have treated people, I've treated people with every single possible story where they needed the opposite of what it was. So it's right. so It goes both ways. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there is just such a biodiversity piece of this. Like it's such a snowflake that you know, one size does not fit all in any mm-hmm. part of this, um, in any part of this epidemic, which I think is what makes it so hard to have a, a, an actual treatment for it. And I'll even say that I don't think everybody has a sugar addiction, right? I, I think if, right. if you do, you're on a great podcast and we have lots of solutions, but <laughs> you know, everyone's like, well, I definitely have a problem with sugar. And I was like, I'm not sure that's true. Let's take some quizzes. Let's really look at that relationship. Also, because if you don't have to break up with it, then good for you. Right. Well, and you we'll know? talk in a bit about, you know, that it makes biochemical changes as well as all the emotional aspects. Absolutely. Um, right. Yeah. And so, but, you know, and so by the time I was seven, um, this thing had really gotten out of hand and the adults in my life were, I think, rightfully concerned about me and they took me to a nutritionist. And I remember that just so exactly. Um, the main reason being, I, I knew in that moment, the solution that that nutritionist was giving me was not the one that I needed. She was talking to me about portion sizes and, you know, and I just couldn't stop eating and I knew it. I knew it right then and there. Um, but that really- Was it you couldn't stop eating anything or if you had, no. like, I know if I have an M&M, I need another. Right. Yeah. Like it wasn't like I couldn't bro- stop eating the salmon and broccoli. Nobody's ever addicted to broccoli and salmon. Know, How odd is right? that? Like, unless you sprinkle some brown sugar on it, then it's a whole different piece of salmon for me. But, <laughs> well, um, of right. So, you know, but, uh, you know, so 
you know, that really the other thing that started at the age of seven was my addiction to dieting, which I think, you know, to not address those two things, if you're just going to be addressing, you know, a break, a breakup with sugar and not address the compulsive dieting that comes along with food and weight disorders, you're not comprehensively treating the problem. It's why in the, in chapter two of chapter two of my book, talks about taking the sacred vow and divorcing dieting because the problem is we don't stay the course. And so we don't end up being able to get into a relationship with food, which is what we, we need to do. And so from the age of seven till the age of 30, you know, I was trapped in these two cycles, one with that terrible diet drama and trauma, which is, you know, I'd go on a diet, the diet would fail me. I would turn to sugar you know, I would gain weight, I would get demoralized, even though the sugar would soothe me, rinse, repeat, and I would try another one, rinse, repeat. This is a cycle for, for so many years. It really did a number in my spirit. And the truth was that I never, ever, ever looked at sugar as the problem because it was the solution for so long. And in fact, I, I did literally, they say like an addict always protects their substance. And I tried every single method that one could try um, including eating through bariatric surgery, including every pill, every acupuncturist, every psychiatrist, except for breaking up with sugar. And now, were you looking when you did all these diets? And I know you did like every single one of them, literally every on, on, on and on. Um, but were you um, were you finding those diets because you were very young to be on diets? So it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Did you, I mean, at seven years old, you didn't say, "Can I be on a diet?" So somebody, no, your, your but I think around 12, and, right. Yeah. But at 12 in the back of teen magazine, there was an ad for the Weight Watchers camps. And I went and asked my mom if I could go to them. And I, I went to those camps forever and ever. And, you know, I went to those camps for a really long time, you know, so I think it was a combination. I mean, I think diet culture is loud and proud. And so I think there were some parts where my mother was very, I know I actually have no anima. I don't have a bit of, I, I really hear my mother struggle. You know, so I think there was a part with like I was obese and it was dangerous and she was scared. And yeah. I want, I was, I was like a willing participant when she would say, let's go to Nutrisystems. Like, like that's yeah. so seductive. I was like, yes, let's put water on hamburgers to make them float up. And that's <laughs> going to be the solution to this, right. you know, or like, yes, let's do Slim Fast. That takes so much time. And the sort of did it. Like, it all made so much. I mean, I was just. Hook, line, and sinker. I mean, right. well, know. and chocolate cakes. Now, well, I keep asking, and I'm not trying to throw your mother under the bus, but you, <laughs> you know, you're because she seems like she was great and honestly wanting to help you. I've seen so many houses, though. So, how rare are you in the world as we're trying to get people to connect to this and understand? I mean, I have watched so many parents who use sugar as the reward. You, you know, potty training, you went, you, you know, you got to go poopy and you got an M&M. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And that, you know, the dinner was in order to get dessert. And, you know, out of love, I've made you homemade donuts today, darling. Or I've gone to the bakery and gotten your favorite Danish. That it's, it is so ingrained as part oh, of that. Oh, and, and I think even culture. worse, even worse than that, it's ingrained culturally. Because um, right. I know that I've, I've said to parents, you know, things like, hey, like, I don't think we should be having like that cake, you know, and let's not get her, let's try to get her off of it. And I'll say, you know, that's, that's just like a tradition in our family. We're not willing to not do that, you know, and it's such an interesting, it's an interesting bind. I mean, and, and, you know, there's a real anthropological piece of this that, you know, when we cried and we got milk, 
you know, it really all got complicated, didn't it? And so whenever I, I do a lot of work with pre-screening kids before they go into, you know, treatment and I will never see the kid and I'll see the parents and I'll ask, you know, two questions. Is the kid, is the kid concerned and is the pediatrician concerned? And then when both of those answers are no, or one of those answers is no, I'll start to talk to the parent about their relationship with food. And it is so incredibly hereditary. Like it's so passed down to people. Um, And so I think, uh, I do think, you know, I do have more of my extended family who impacted me in an incredibly negative way. My grandparents were incredibly judgmental and you had to look good, but my mother actually, no, um, she was just sort of, I really just really tried to do her best. She was kind of over, uh, given a, given a case that she wasn't equipped for, which I think a lot of parents are. And I think it's, you know, I think that adolescent obesity thing is so hard because their brains aren't developed. They don't have car keys, you know, they don't have, they're just so much is still developing in them that it's a really, it's, it's, it's so complicated. Well, and I know as a parent, it was really hard. So my, my kids are now in their 20s. But I remember so consciously as you're, you you want to help them develop good eating habits. And like you are you can't win no matter what you say. Because if, yes. you, if you say, exactly. if you let them go wild, well, now they need to learn to, to control themselves and they need to learn guidelines. But if you say anything, they take it so deep and so hard and it gets so ingrained. Like you, you literally, it's a, you could... The, what was going on, the whole conversation in my head as my child is, you know, whatever, wanting to have, go go to school in the morning with just a pancake in her stomach or right, something. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, ideally it's like we want to have some kind of neutrality. I mean, that's what I always try to talk to parents about is trying to really have kids get really neutral around the food. And so it's having kind of universal laws in the house and things like that. But sometimes it's just not possible. It's it's a really tricky thing. And so I, I have a lot of compassion for my mom as to, you know, and I think the other thing is I, I was getting bigger and bigger and sicker and sicker and I and more depressed and, and all the things that come along with addiction and all the things that come along with eating disorders. And just think we were really outmatched with this particular with this particular thing. Yeah. So, you know, and so, and, and I, I just, when I was at those weight loss camps and I was 13 years old, you know, and everybody wants to be a doctor and a lawyer and a teacher, I had a knowing because I was sitting at these weight loss camps and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was going to lose this weight at the weight loss camp and I was going to go home and I was going to gain it back. And that's exactly what happened in freshman year. I can remember it like it was yesterday and I'm 42 years old and I remember being in home at class and my new gap jeans. And the button popped off of my skinny jeans. And I just knew oh, that I, you know, I just knew it was, I just knew I had, it was over, you know, that, that oh. and I had the, and I had the taste in my mouth. And, um, so that, and I knew so then that, and there that I was going to do this work. I was like, I am going to solve this. <laughs> I like knew it at 13. <laughs> at th- and here I am. And here I that's am. That's amazing. Right. So everyone uh, has their reason they're on this earth. So let's try to separate the out though, because again, we started talking about like the whole relationship to food and sugar is so complicated. The emotional aspects of it, love, stress release, comfort reward, power when it comes to eating disorder. So there's that part of it. But at what point does it cross into this addiction where there are biochemical changes that are yeah, going yeah. on in the brain? So, cause you're really talking about a, in some, a biochemical addiction, I think, more than this emotional addiction. Yeah, well, I think it's. I, I mean, listen, I think the emotional addiction is is not is not to be under understated, but 
I think when we get too deep into the emotions, we forget that there is literally this biochemical piece of this that makes it almost impossible for us to stop. You know, I was talking to a client yesterday, Carol, and, you know, she was like, well, you know, I can't concentrate and I can't sleep and I'm so hopeless and all I want to do is eat. And then said, you know, and last night I ate a bunch of dates and a bunch of dark chocolate covered almonds. And I said, I totally understand how you're feeling right now. It's very hard for you to feel differently while sugar is still in your body. Like, the, and I said to her, like, this right. isn't even personal and this isn't even emotional. I don't, it doesn't even matter how you're feeling. This is literally like a switch has been turned on in your brain where this well, craving won't stop until we stop it. Well, and there have been those assorted studies that literally show that sugar is as addictive, if not more so than cocaine. I mean, where they've done this. Yeah. Those studies are amazing. I think cocaine is, I think those people maybe haven't done cocaine, but still very, very. <laughs> I have not done it. So I have no idea. Still, still very, very. The point is, is that sugar, we shouldn't be laughing about sugar like they are in binge culture right now, right? That, that it is a very serious thing. It takes over your brain in a similar way. Right. right. And, and and that it's and that it deserves to be addressed because there is so much freedom on the other side of it. And I think that that's what I've really seen with people. And so, yeah, when we're talking about a bio when we're talking about biochemical addiction and we can even talk about it, you know, behaviorally, I mean, there are these parts of defined DSM five addiction you now that say it very clearly, right? Do you eat more than you intend to? Do you say, I swear I'm only gonna have one cookie tonight and then are you halfway down the sleeve, right? Have you had people concerned about it? Has a doctor said to you, hey, you're coming close to type two diabetes, you gotta decrease your sugar intake and then you're eating ice cream that night, right? Do you have cravings? Are you sitting at work and it's four o'clock and you want the meeting to end so you can get to the M&Ms like you're talking about, right? I mean, there's so... And it's in chapter four of my book. It's like, I, it's not for me to decide if you are or you're not, but there are really clear criteria that fit that fit this bill so much. And it's not a death sentence, like quite the opposite. It's like a life sentence because if you have the thing, there's a solution for it. Yep, absolutely. So how has, again, let, let me just bring in the concept of the pandemic for a minute, where the stress, the release of the cortisol, like how does that exacerbate the problem. Oh, I right? love and that because, question it, because I think that's the thing that nobody's talking about when they're talking about sugar addiction. You know, and a, and a lot of people dispute what I'm saying. I mean, there's a whole eating disorder community that says, you know, moderation and intuitive eating is the only way. And when I get into it with them and they say, "Well, tell me the data." And I'll say, "Well, the data is type 2 type 2 diabetes. That your data is right there, right? Because more than anything, even more then the nervous system, dopamine lighting up the brain is the impact this thing has on your hormones and on your endocrine system, right? So when we are adding cortisol into the mix of an already, which is like the, which is the stress hormone that we're all having such issues with right now right. into an already compromised endocrine system. And that's, that's the problem with this. When you put this much sugar into your body and the insulin is releasing more than it can insulin actually attacks your brainstem and when something attacks your brainstem there's nothing that can work <laughs> like well, there's no there it, you can't feel full it's so right it's so i think that the complications of the endocrine system is one is one of the most overlooked parts of people's um unhealthy relationship with with sugar well and again it cycles on itself and just as just a, an interesting aside here 
obese people and diabetics are some of the most vulnerable to COVID and the ones that are having oh, the worst time of with course. it. I mean, right. right. And, and the people who are at home, you know, taking on binge culture to say that they deserve this or whatever languaging people are using with this are putting or becoming more susceptible to illness. I mean, the, the, yeah. the studies with immune support, the, the immune system and obesity, the immune system and sugar, cancer and sugar, like, I think in 20 years is going to be a very different conversation. I don't think it's going to be so groundbreaking what we're talking about here. Only, only if they can overcome the addiction. I had a, a Facebook Live the other day with Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. He quoted to me, if you drink a 12-ounce can of soda, it will suppress your immune system by 30% for three hours. I mean, that's this is my how new favorite piece of data. I'm so in love with that. Thank you for sharing yeah. that with me. I'm going to be. I will be passing that forward like it's nobody's business. <laughs> you may have it. It's it's Thank on you. the video on the on the bottom line Facebook Thank page. You. Thank right. you. So let's. I want to move into to the um the treatment plan and how you get over it. But let me ask you one thing before that, because you know you were 325 pounds. It was clear that you had a weight problem. But there are those people that are, <laughs> say the least, <laughs> right? Um, but there are those people that are 10, 20, 30 pounds overweight, right? Our we our our culture has come to accept that that weight overweightness, which is fine. But they can be similarly addicted to sugar, can't they? Because we're again we're talking about this biochemical addiction. Oh my gosh, they can be more addicted. I, Mark Hyman, Dr. Mark Hyman has, I think he coined the phrase "tofi," you know, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Right. And yes. you know, I've treated I've treated people who are completely normal weighted, and there's a piece of this that listen, I, you know, a morbid obese person is is my family, right? They are my family. Those are my people. But I've treated, you know, there is a pain that comes with struggling with this addiction and binge eating and like not having it on your outside that is the silent suffering that is like as bad. It's really like, there's a pain when you don't have the out and people are saying, Oh, come on. It's no big deal. You're so lucky. You can eat as much ice cream as you want. These people can't stop eating and they're in so much psychic and physical and emotional pain from it. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's an equal opportunity abuser, you know? Well, and I think it's important that people understand that you can be heavily addicted to sugar and a little bit overweight or not so, overweight or, or right. not even have a weight problem. Right. Right. That's true. So are there symptoms that somebody can identify in them, right? Beyond the, I can't get enough sugar. Like, are there subtleties or, you know, how does, how does someone identify that, wow, this might be me? You know, it's a funny thing about that. I think I believe so much in our internal wisdom. Like I really, I really believe in this internal compass that we all have, right? My, my teacher, Marsha Linehan, who created dialectical behavioral therapy, you know, she calls it our wise mind. And so there's a part where, I mean, just non, non-scientifically and non-diagnostically, more spiritually, like if you think you do, you probably do, right? So there's always this feeling of like this integrity that's crossed within us. That's like, gosh, I, I think about this all of the time and the food is really loud in my head. And I really, these, these symptoms I was telling you about before, right? Like I say, I'm going to stop eating sugar. And by 11 o'clock, I'm eating a donut. Like there are these little, you know, and then there's this beautiful diagnostic criteria that's been created by the Yale food addiction scale, which is in the book. I mean, there's, there's, there's sort of these subtle ways that you can understand that you're in an unhealthy relationship with food. And then there are these really clearly diagnostic ways, all of them usually being accurate. I remember having a friend 
who was, she was never morbidly obese, but she was always a good, I'm going to call it 30 pounds overweight. And she, she didn't understand portion control. Like her definition of portion was till I'm done. Yeah. So that I would watch her take a, a fistful and a fistful and a fistful and a fistful. And it was like that just so unaware, just unconscious of the behavior, right? So, you know, to, to find people that are in integrity and conscious and aware and watching themselves, but are there a whole lot of people out there who are utterly oblivious to their own behavior? I think, I mean, I'm not sure. I think there are some that are, and there are some that aren't. I think mostly, you know, that would really tap into dissonance, right? I think there are people who have given up on themselves. I think there are people who think, well, this is just the way that I am and I'm never going to be able to change. And I love food more than I love a solution. And, you know, cognitive dissonance is not something to mess around with. So I think if you have a core belief that you can't give this up or that, you know, the things that addiction says, like you can't give this up, you can't live life without me. What are you going to do on your birthday? All the things that I hear when I first meet people, it's a, it's a, it's a serious uphill battle. It's, it's why I wrote the book. It's why I wrote the chapter on cognitive dissonance, because I think you can be really captured by, um, by core beliefs and especially with food. I mean, if you think of it as a drug, which I do sometimes and I do, and I don't sometimes, but it's the first drug you used, right? Really. When you had the yep. birthday cake on your first birthday, there right. it started. And, well, and, and oddly, there were there was a pusher that gave it to you. Exactly. <laughs> and not on we purpose. All did that. We're all just doing our best. We're all just we doing our all best. Did that. Yes, yeah, we all did sure. Oh, you have to have the big, you know, the first birthday cake and you have to have the picture of the kid with the chocolate all over the face. Uh, yep. Right. We all are pushers. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about <laughs> addressing the sugar addiction. And in fact, you have an exercise. What we're talking about is, um, you know, how do you really realize you have a problem and you have a core beliefs exercise that you have in your book? Yeah, I love that one, though. I think it's I think it's really eye opening for people to see how the thoughts really keep them locked up. Right. And the uh, and the alternative is not the opposite of it. Right. And I say that really clearly in the book, it's not like, gosh, I can't live without, you know, the core belief being, you know, I'm a foodie and I can't, I can't live without sugar. The opposite isn't going to be true for you. Like, yes, I can. Like I'm not made that way. I'm not made with like cheerleading me out of something. Like I'll just walk away from it. Uh, But the answer is sort of balancing it and getting curious about it and really starting to challenge the belief and balance the belief. Um, I do say as a behaviorist in this book, though, at the end of that chapter, that the greatest form of the greatest and quickest way to change a belief is is action, right? So if you just want to have your know that you have this core belief and still break up with sugar, you'll get there faster. But there's certainly ways to start to challenge the belief system and some of the languaging that we use and stuff that's all part of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I utilize as a as a main as a main part of my skill set when I help people. Yeah. And are there, are there some core teaser questions? Again, I, th- I find people have a hard time, um, again, where they don't, re- they, they know they have a problem. They don't, they can't articulate it. They can't necessarily see it. So if you say to somebody, what's your core belief about food? They may not be able to answer that question. So are there like tickler questions that you have that help them start to even I would start, yeah, head? I would start at the end of it, which is when you think about breaking up with sugar, what's the first thought that comes up? I go, I can't, you know, I can't do that. Go, go one right. deeper, go one deeper. Why not? Well, because what would I do on my birthday? Well, I mean, how would I drink my coffee? Right. right. I mean, I think that you start at the, I would, I would, I would go from the back to the front on that. 
And I would think about, well, what are the, what, what is really preventing you? What is really in the way of you making that change? What is the threat to you making this change? And once you have that, you really have some gold in your hands because then, and this is the beauty of, of behavioral therapy, right? It takes the subconscious and puts it into the conscious. And once it's in the conscious, it's like, you know, the toothpaste is out of the tube. You can't unsee that. Yeah. And then you get to make a choice if you want to live your life because you want to have birthday cake. That's a choice you get to make. Yeah. We're, not adjudic- we're not adjudicated to breaking up with sugar, you know, like the parole officer. It always saddens me when you ask, when you start to hear people's excuses, they go, yeah. well, you know, I can't have coffee without sugar, or I could never make it through the day without my, you know, three o'clock Snickers break. Yeah. That like yeah. the, the people don't realize how much power they have. And that they come from this place of, I can't help it. And I, it always saddens me so much. And yet, you know, your book, your experience shows, no, you really can. But yeah, you and I, I lived in a victim stance for like most of my life. And I think when I, when I was able to shine light on that piece that, you know, life wasn't happening to me, right? And I had choices and that everything I was doing was a choice. It was like this incredibly empowered moment. And actually, the fascinating part of, the industry that I'm in, right? The, at least this part, the, the weight loss industry, which I hate that. I hate those words more than life, but is that there's actually no evidence base, right? There's no one thing that works for anybody. That's the most interesting thing. So, but the, the one piece of research that is across the board in all of this, which is exactly what we're saying is self-determination, that the only thing that really counts in addictions and eating disorders and weight loss is when you make the choice, when it is on your turn, right and it is in your house. That's how it sticks. I have this really good friend who's a compulsive gambler, and he says this, it's like, this is the story, right? He says, well, the first time I went to rehab, it was for my dad. And the second time I went to rehab, it was for me, right? So doing this on, for finding your why, finding your reasoning and finding your version of my solution is really what's going to stick in all of this. And, And getting out of that victim stance and making a choice to take back your relationship with food. Yeah, no, it is. It's always up to you. All right. So let's talk about, so you have um, vows that you want people to make. Yeah. And you talk about- This relationship. (laughs) It's not a diet. I just want to say that. I need to say that like a hundred times. I can't help it. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. So- (laughs) And do, do you have a minister that speaks the vows or they get to write their own vows? Well, I administer it for the first 66 days. Like I, I you know, I got, because you got, you, there's such a, a flawed foundation when you start, you know, but there's a whole fourth quarter of the book that talks about creating your own version of this, which I think is incredibly important because I can't be sitting in their house with them. But from what I know, you know, there are these seven vows and they really, really work. And they're what I do at my treatment center in New York City, the Beacon. And it's just what works across the board for people. And taking them is really, really important. And it's it's this comprehensive behavioral set of skills that we know if you repeat them pretty consistently will get you what science calls automacy, which is effectively the intuition that you need. It's really that automatic habit that we want to happen. Let me tell you, when I took this book to market, how many publishers had big issues with my big 66-day plan? Like they were begging me to make it less because <laughs> it was hard to sell. Well, but I'm like a scientist. You're absolutely right. I have that same question. Everybody 66. Does. Of course, you're brave because 66. Oh, 
That's like right. a yeah. compliment anyone could give me. You um, are because, you know, 14 day cure, seven day cure, seven hour cure, but 66 days. Now you have a sound rationale for why it's 66 days. Yeah, but I'm also like an obesity survivor and I'm also a diet drama survivor and I'm not, I can't sell my people something that isn't going to work. And the truth is of addiction, when you do a seven day sugar cleanse, all you do is end up making your addiction worse. I mean, that's the progression of an illness, right? So if I go off sugar for seven days and then on the eighth day, I'm like hands in the, hands in the donuts, what I'm actually doing is progressing my illness. If you want to think about it from a sheer addictions perspective, that's why I'm very clear about what I'm saying. And like, I, you know, to me, it was like, there wasn't, I'm a very uh, flexible person, but on this point, I wasn't, what I did is I went to the research and I said, where's the first time where there's going to be a real brain change, like a real neurological change for people. And the first number I could find was 66. Nobody wants it to be four days more than me. I can promise you that across the board. Like I would have been, four four it would have been like such a more sellable book, but like, here's, here's what I have. Well, and I think that it's important that the, the rationale behind that, given that this is affecting the multiple systems of your body, yeah. right? It isn't just, I don't want to eat donuts anymore, that it's your nervous system. It's your endocrine system. Like yeah. it's, it's your body recalibrating. And when you have, you know, um, when you get off a drug and, you know, you go into the DTs, like you're, you're, because your body's adjusting, it's missing that drug and it takes time to balance back out and to start functioning in a clean way. Well, and I really want people, like, I really want this to be the last time that people have to go through this traumatic start over day one piece of this. It's, soul crushing to have to start. I mean, that's really the other thing I know from my own experience. It's like, I dedicate this book to the reader because I'm like, good for you for doing this one more time. Like I get what a big deal it is to get the pride, you know, pick it up, like try one more time. And I just, I wanted to give the best science that I could to try to have this be sustainable for people, you know? All right. So here they are, they've made their vows. Or they've yep. said their vows, but no, but, but they've done it, I'll call it in private, yeah. right? So how do, and then they have to stick with it for 66 days. So how do you get them? What is it, the mechanism that gets them to stick with those vows, to declare them and then honor them? Because it would be easy to not honor them because no one heard me say it. Right. Um, and then to stay on it for 66 days because the, you know, the first time you, you know, you have that craving and you got to fight through it. And then on day 12 and day 20 and day 32, 66 days, we've all been in quarantine now for 40 days, 45 days. Yeah. It's a long time. It sure is. It sure is. Well, I think I, I really, so this is where I'm, I'm, I'm trained in the tra dialectical behavioral therapy, which is the treatment for suicide and borderline personality disorder and so many things. And it's just, it's the, actually the most evidence-based treatment that exists. And one of the pieces of that treatment is the idea that we really have um, a lapse in our ability to have skills, especially around tolerating distress. And the third part of the book is all about this, this thing that so many of us diet veterans balk at, you know, like in the conventional weight loss program or the nutritionist's office, they'll say, you know, take a bubble bath instead of eating. And like, if it like me, I'm like, 
oh, you don't understand how bad this is. Except right. You'd be for, a by now, right? <laughs> right. I, I just am like throwing darts out of my eyes at the nutritionist, right. except for when you start to read the research on it, right? And Marsha Linehan, uh, who created this treatment model and who created this amazing distress tolerance module in her treatment, which I write about in the book, says, okay, yes, yes, I understand how invalidating that is. And yet, if food stays, if sugar stays on the table as your way to cope, it is actually going to be impossible for you to change. And, you know, like they say, like nothing changes, nothing changes. So the third part of the book is about kind of changing your life. Like otherwise right. it's just a diet and the diet's going to fail. And so it is. Right. And the other thing that I think is imperative, and there's a lot of research, one of my favorite YouTube videos on earth is talks about, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. And getting really connected and what you're saying, which is like one of the things I say at the end of that of food plan chapter is like, you got to go tell somebody you're doing this. You can't do this in a box. Like there needs to be a person in this world that knows that you're breaking up a sugar so that it isn't so secretive because you know what's secretive, that night binging, you know, that sneaking the cookie when your husband's not looking. Like we have to get, that's so, you know, such a shame-based illness in that way. And and starting to tell the truth about the true nature of what's happening for you is so part of the solution to this. Yes, absolutely. All right. So now, meanwhile, though, so you talk about, you, you, we've talked about diets and diets not working, and this is a whole other relationship. And you talk about you know, that it's a food plan or, or in some ways yeah. a life plan. Yeah. So, so talk about, again, just specifically the difference between a food plan versus a diet, because next we're going to talk about what you can't eat, what you can eat. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know, to those, it'll sound like a distinction without a difference. Okay, call it a plan, call no, it a diet. No, I mean, I really, I have people, yes, I have people screaming at me all day. This is what I do for a living. I sit in session people and this is what they scream at me, right? Like, this just feels like a diet. And I'm like, no, 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 I totally get that. And in the beginning, it does, because- you know, you've been out of control and we're, and I'm suggesting that we need to sort of rein it in and get it in control. It's a rebuild. And I wouldn't call it a diet. It's a rebuild. And that is painful. Quitting something is painful. It's like all the cash and prizes is on the other side of it, as all good things are. And to me, the difference between a diet and a relationship is actually a shift in what you choose to believe. And it's what we were talking about before. And so if you're going to think of it as a diet, then it's likely it's going to fail. And so I beg people to sort of extend their belief with me and think that maybe it can be different. And so. Is there that, also an aspect of it that I always viewed diets as punitive absolutely. and I had, to, I had to shift my eating habits significantly 20 years ago. And I thought I'll never, I haven't eaten sugar in 20 years. Oh my God. Because um, I, I, well, I've had bits and pieces of it. So I give sure, myself yeah. my taste, but for all intents and purposes, sugar's out of my diet. Um, and I thought I'd never be able to, because again, I was a child of Pop-Tarts and Fruit Loops. Right. Um, and, but anytime I went on a diet, it, I would last five minutes because mm -hmm. it was punitive. It was what I can't have, right? So you just focus on what I can't have versus a plan or a shift that you're creating a new life for these people. They need to, you know, in terms of looking at themselves outside of sugar and as a person beyond what that, what that um, shackle is. Well, I think the other piece of it, which is, is that in addictions, we call it the abstinence violation effect, which is actually how people overdose all of the time, right? They go into the screw-its. So they, they're mm -hmm. off heroin for a while, and then they go back and they take the exact dose that they took and they go big and they go home. You know what I mean? And that's how they die. And, if, and the other people who do that are dieters, right? So they, you know, they are on a diet uh, at eight o'clock in the morning on Monday. 
there and they eat seven donuts by the end of the morning meeting. And then it's, it doesn't stop there. And then it's pizza for lunch and it's frozen yogurt and it's fettuccine alfredo and it's on and it's on and it's on and it's on and it's on, right? The analogy that I use in the book, it's like, it's like we get a flat tire on our car and we get out of the car and we slash all four tires and we torch the car and we leave it in the middle of the highway. And that's, if, if, and that's where the relationship piece comes in, which is that if we behaved in this way in any other relationship with our life, we would have nothing. Right, we would have no work relationships. We would have no friendships, no romantic. We have no. We would never have a relationship with a dog, and that's where the shift needs to happen. Which is also in this way, which is like there's a very last inevitable piece of food. It's sort of like an inevitable piece that you won't do it perfectly. And I talk about this a lot in the fourth part of the book, which is finding alternatives to being perfect, because that's how you live in a relationship with curiosity and oh, what happened? Wow, I just did that thing and. Let me look into it. Let me see how I can do it differently. That's how I survive in my relationships. I don't know about you. Well, you aim, exactly. you aim for perfection and then you pick up the pieces when you can. I mean, it's just very how it works. So do you allow people, so they've, they've made their vows and the vows, the vows are kind of the outline of the plan. It's no sugar and grain-free flour and watch your volume and eat every three to four and a half hours. Yeah. Um, and, and things like that. have an open mind. Or, yeah. yeah. Have an open yeah. mind and plan your plan your meals, right? So that you're not just meandering through. Um, But then they have to go to a wedding, right? Or then they have to go to whatever. Like, do you allow them or how do they allow themselves to also be part of life? And, you know, it doesn't mean you can't have fun without a drink in your hand and you can't go to a birthday party and never have a bite of the cake. Are they allowed to have a bite or does it depend or do you have to wait the 66 days until you can control it? Cause yeah, I mean, so I love that. It's such a great question. So yeah, I mean, the first thing is that I really beg them to give me 66 days. And I think after that, you know, there's this concept in the eating disorder world that says, you know, intuitive eating. And I, I, I just think we don't even have intuition as a country, as a world anymore. It's not an intuitive world that we live in and gut health and everything, but that we can get to a place of humble eating, which is really so knowing what works for you, knowing what doesn't. I, I think that there are really gradations of the, of the abusive relationship or addiction to sugar that, but, but in general, like I'm not a believer in cheat days because I am a relationship person. And when we right. use the word cheat, we like put priority on food that isn't healthy for us. And it makes us not able to love the food that we can eat. And so I think it's so case by case. But the thing I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt is I don't think that we give up sugar and flour to live a life the size of a postage stamp. I write it a million times in this book. I believe it wholeheartedly. I live it a big, beautiful life. And so I think it's about really finding what works for you. But but I, I find, and, and I think a lot of people with addictions feel this, I find that when you eat the sugar at the wedding, it becomes about the sugar and not the wedding for many. Right. And you lose well, the fun of it, right? And again, it's this, as you said, it's the plan. It's the whole shift of their life. Instead of having your life centered around the food, Without that, now they have a whole other world of their life that they can have. And I think people really go from black and white to color with this with this breakup. And I think that they, and listen, I mean, I think there are people who go and they try the cake and it doesn't work. And then that's how they learn how they do it. I mean, I'm not, I'm really not about this abstinence violation effect. I think, you know, I, I have this beautiful Facebook group of, it's like so gorgeous. And people always write about this kind of stuff. What do you think I should do? And they write about their experience. And I think it's, but I think when you have a really unhealthy relationship with sugar, 
trying to learn how to live a life where you have fun and enjoyment and sugar is not the main stage is going to make life a lot easier. And listen, I go to weddings and I go on vacation and I go out to dinner when I, I may live in New York City. You know, I got to dinner five nights a week. Like, I don't let this thing stop me. Quite the opposite. Right. It's just like, I, it actually gives me more freedom to live my life. Yeah. And you're proud when you, when you kind of stick by your, your rules and your vows. All right. So let me ask right. you one last, let me ask you one last question. So given that you know, there was the addiction part of it, but there was also the whole mindset of I'm an obese person and I'm a, like that, that goes with being, being in that world. So once they get through the 66 days, once they shift, once they lose the weight, how hard is it to, to understand, like to, to realize they're, they're, they're not owned by that definition anymore? Yeah. You know what that's I mean? Like a, that's like its own podcast, right? I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I tell you, know, like, listen, I, I weigh 150 pounds. I have for nearly 11 years, right? And there are days where that morbidly obese part of me sort of creeps up and some of those core beliefs sneak back in, you know. I'm a firm believer in saying like we're sort of powerless over our thoughts, but we're not powerless over what we choose to believe and how we choose to behave and starting to be more discerning about the thinking. I mean, if you want to break free of all of it, like full freedom, it takes some discernment in choosing what you believe. And it takes some time to, you know, the thing about breaking up with sugar is that you really reclaim a relationship with yourself. It's it's the hidden gem in the whole thing. It might even be better than the freedom that you get from sugar because what we do when we destroy our bodies and we destroy is that we also destroy the relationship with ourselves. We're no longer trustable, right? We're just telling lies to ourselves all day, making rationalizations. I, I if you looked at me when I was in the depths of my addiction with sugar, I, I, I would not want to have me as a friend, as a, as a wife, as an anything, right? Because I wasn't trustable. I didn't have any right. integrity in my behavior. And so when you're doing the behaviors you do in order to break up a sugar actually allows you to become this reliable person, full of integrity, proud. And what ends up happening, and this is to the wedding question also, is I think what feels really, what does feel punitive or restrictive or whatever it feels in the beginning, and of course it does, your behavior's out of control, takes a shift and it does happen about two month mark. I've seen it in my clinic for years. It moves from that to something you really want to protect. And that's what I can say on the other side of it. Like right. I'm in this house and they're making cookies and whatever. I look at that and I think it's not worth it. I'm not, I'm not selling it away for that. It's not worth it to me my life is better than a bite of a cookie. This doesn't make sense. Also for me, I look at a cookie and I'm like, Oh, what a hilarious, cute little serving that cookie is like, that's not my portion <laughs> size, you know? Right. Well, I also realized once I stopped eating sugar, I didn't realize till I stopped eating it, how bad it made me feel. Oh, can I and also now... say, I didn't realize how sweet things were. I don't mean to sound like so yeah. fruit about it, but I was like, like I eat a banana now and I'm like, Whoa, that's sweetness. And I'm a girl who was putting like, seven Splenda or yogurt. Like I'm not, right. you know, but it's, it's amazing how you recalibrate your taste buds too. Yeah, no, it totally is. Um, all right. I'm going to let you go. Molly Carmel, you are wonderful. You're an oh, inspiration. Thank you so very much. No one. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So your website, mollycarmel.com and the book is breaking up with sugar and it is great. And if you want to let yourself free to a whole new world, then 
read it, get it, go to her website. Thank you. Thank you. I'm talking to Molly Carmel, author of Breaking Up With Sugar, about the hold that sugar has on all of us, its impact on the obesity epidemic, and how to get it out of your life for good. Molly Carmel is just one example of the types of top experts who have been featured in our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, where we provide guidance to help you live happier, healthier, and wealthier. Our experts share insights on not just weight loss and nutrition, but on all aspects of your life, including managing your money, smart home repair, beating disease, how to find bargains, unique travel destinations, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.